Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Misha Eide, and Misha and Andrew are a couple of California transplants who fell in love with farming in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. They are both animal lovers and meat lovers. They decided to raise animals with compassionate care so they could enjoy the finest quality meat without guilt. Their farm is in the shadow of Mount Rainier on the traditional land of the Pialup uh, tribe. They recognize their continued presence and community in their region. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, raised in California, how did you uh, get involved with farming? Yeah, it was um, kind of an unexpected trajectory for both my husband and I. Neither of us have any farming background, um, at least not in recent history, and um, we met in Southern California when we were living in San Diego. And the year we got married, 2012, we had some, just some big changes happen. Um, I got laid off from a job I had in the sales and marketing world for biotech. And he had a construction job working for some family. And um, we decided that we were going to sell everything we own and do like the quintessential hipster road trip across the U.S. We had a teardrop trailer, stay at all the national parks and everything um, because we didn't really have anything tying us down. And so we did that and we just realized we really enjoyed obviously that freedom, but mostly just being outside. Like I had worked in an office for, Uh you know, years before and, and he was already working outside and would never work in an office, but, um, So we decided that we would, when we landed, we wanted to be in the Pacific Northwest, which is where my husband grew up and his family was here. And so we wanted to to come back to be near family. Um, And we thought, well, let's try farming as as an internship or something, just to see what it is, see what what it's like. You know, we're a a little bit of foodies and wanted Mm. to just sort of do the thing that a lot of people do when they're young and just want to check out farming. So we did that, except the farm that we landed on, the, the managers they had lined up backed out. And so we wound up our very first year farming, managing a 30-person vegetable CSA okay, and raising some animals for meat. So it was pretty small, but we literally knew nothing. So it was pretty intense. Um, and we also built a tiny house at that place at the same time. So it was just a very incredibly difficult season. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the guy who owned that farm was very supportive of us and um, did the farm for him was not, you know, that's, that was sort of his playground. Like he Mm -hmm. has other income. And so that gave us a little bit more freedom and um, he encouraged us to start our own business. And we were quite naive and we were like, sure, why not? Um, (laughs) Yeah. So our second year farming, we started our own business. I don't recommend that. 
So talk to us a little bit, how long do you think it would, a good internship slash apprenticeship or training before you actually start farming should be? I think that really is going to depend on the program that you're in, right? Mm, um, yep. So what I, I definitely recommend to anybody who is interested is find those internships. Although at this stage in the game, I would say find a, a paying farm job. Um, internships are fine. The, the free labor is questionable to me. So like making sure you're compensated, but um, try working at a few different farms to see what kind of farming you like. And every farm that you work on is going to have some, something really cool and interesting and different to teach you. Mm-hmm. And there's also, at least where we are, a lot of educational opportunities, like, and now, especially post pandemic, a lot of it is online in the evenings. So signing up for those like business farm related type courses, I think is really important. Um, some of those I wind up teaching at now, just like some marketing stuff. So we definitely learned, but like trial by fire and farming is already stressful enough that I, I really do encourage folks to like get their feet wet first before they dive right in. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about um, like what you you said your first year you started a farm. What did that look like? Like what, what level of production were you attempting? So yeah, the first two years we were growing predominantly vegetables, like crop, you know, um, row crops. And then we had a handful of animals because we actually always wanted to grow meat. Um, but the farm that we landed on was already a vegetable production farm and the owner had grass fed beef as well. Um, and so, you know, I don't think we were growing much more than an acre Um, but we were like literally learning as we went and we had the first year was just really the two of us. The second year we had a couple interns, which we were in no place to educate. So that was a bit of a disaster. Um, and then the third year we decided this is too much. We can't do all of these vegetables well and learn everything that needs to be learned about how to grow all these crops and do the meat. So we had started with a small amount of livestock, you know, like five pigs our first year, Uh 25 turkeys. The farm was already doing some pasture-raised chickens. So that was our introduction. I think the first year we did maybe like 300. And so the third year we decided we were just going to focus on meat and it opened Uh up the space to allow other farmers to come in and do vegetables, farmers who were very good at it. And it allowed us to reshift our focus and our business on meat. Uh, our challenges at that, at that farm were that it's in the floodplain and it floods every year. Um, and one year we had significant multiple floods. Um, and with, with livestock, it's difficult. Obviously, you have to get everybody to safety. So, uh, And we were, of course, leasing land, living in a tiny house that didn't have running water. And then um, we got pregnant and we're like, this is not sustainable for Mm-hmm. for long. So we were able to buy a farm, um, through, we got a, um, a loan through the USDA for the, um, beginning farmer and rancher, uh, loan program and, um, bought a farm about, we're about an hour and a half away from our first farm. So okay. that was difficult too, is figuring out how to like keep our customer base and expand. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, when you, when you bought your first farm, uh, what does land go for out there per acre? Oh man, I don't have any idea. Um, 
it's incredibly expensive out here. And the only reason we can buy the farm that we bought is because it has a conservation easement on it from a uh-huh. land trust. And that is like the single biggest barrier to most small farmers out here is land access. So we do have some land trusts in our region that work really hard. Mm-hmm. And um, we got we got really lucky because this farm fit our needs. It had barns. The owners were willing to be patient because, of course, USDA loan process is very cumbersome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it took at least six months for us to do all of the paperwork. At least, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, um, it, we also, it was the timing. So that was 2017. And of course, everything has skyrocketed even more since then. So mm-hmm. and part of the reason we had to move an hour and a half away is because where we were farming, we would have loved to stay there, but everything had already kind of been parceled out into small, like five acre plots. And it was mm-hmm. within commuting distance to Seattle and like the other tech region and so you know people with lots of money were coming in and buying like homesteady farm plots and it was just the the value of the land was so high that we just couldn't figure out a way to stay there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because at that point were you slightly north up uh, you're up by um seattle yep we were in a town called snohomish um slightly larger town than where we're in now and um within commuting distance of, of places like Redmond and Bellevue where like Microsoft is. Oh yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. I know where you're, I'm, yeah, I'm looking at the map now here because I mm-hmm. geek out on maps. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That is I, exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Because the Seattle is that huge tech aspect. And so you've mm-hmm. got, yeah. Yeah. So then your markets, are your markets back in Seattle or are you shipping, are you doing Tacoma? What's your marketing look like? So we do all of it now and we worked really, really hard for, you know, five years to build a customer base in what we call the East side of Seattle. So, you know, originally up in Snohomish, Redmond, Bellevue, all that. Um, And a lot of those customers in in the tech region actually are Muslim. So we can talk about that a little bit later because that's Mm -hmm. a bit of a unique offering that we have. And we didn't want to lose those customers and we didn't all, like, we didn't want to abandon them. And so we kept them. And then the, the early years of our new farm, we were doing rendezvous. So they would order and we would meet them in different areas to deliver and drop off. Um, it was very time consuming and also just logistically challenging. And then people would forget to show up. And then I would have all these chickens in my cooler. So mm-hmm. We got away from that a little bit um, and also our hand was a little bit forced during the pandemic to start offering shipping. So we now ship via FedEx with dry ice throughout the state of Washington. And, um, but we've also, since we've been here at our current farm for four years almost now, we have, we have also built more of a local clientele Mm-hmm. So some people come to pick up at the farm as well. And then of course, into Tacoma, we have a couple, we have a few wholesale accounts, like a couple small restaurants and, and grocery stores type things too. Mm-hmm. Um, so currently how many animals are you, you're running on the farm? So this year, our, our biggest numbers are poultry. So this year we're doing about 2,400 chickens okay. and 300 turkeys ish. Um, we typically harvest between 20 and 40, um, hogs a year, just depending on our breeding. 
And we, uh, we are doing our very first beef harvest this year. So we just started, we're very small on beef. So we'll have um, four to harvest this year. Mm-hmm. And we also started rats last year. So um, quite a few rabbits as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, lambs. and lambs. And lambs. We've, oh, wow. we've been buying, yeah, we've been, we used to breed. We got out of breeding for a while and we've been buying in lambs from a friend of mine that lives a few miles down the road, which is great. Okay. And then um, what uh, what processing has taken place on the farm? So we process, we have the license to process all of our own poultry and rabbits. And we actually have a really nice uh, processing equipment. We have a, tra- a trailer, although we don't move it with a bunch of equipment. And then we have a, we built out a secondary processing room where we do all of our like packaging, cutting up. And we're starting to experiment with things like ground we do ground turkey but we also got a smoker with a grant so we're going to start offering smoked poultry products um and because we have a crew for that and we have all the equipment we recently so last year we added co-packing services for other farmers so okay. we also have the license to to package to slaughter and package poultry for other farmers up to twenty thousand a year Gotcha. And is and what what exemption is that? Is that a specific exemption or is that actually like an inspected plant? It's an exemption. I mean, we are inspected by our state, mm-hmm. but it's an exemption from from USDA. So it's like 40-492, I think, or something, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like this. I should know okay. that number. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um yeah, and actually, it's interesting that your state has one of the higher exemptions. I think you said twenty thousand, right? Yeah, we actually have two levels of exemptions. Our state is actually quite, it's its really nice, actually. We have some pretty good exemptions for meat. So when we first started, we had the lowest level exemption, which was you could do under a thousand birds a year from our own farm only. Uh, but the limitation on that one was that they can't be frozen and they can't be sold wholesale. Like it can't be, oh, I have to sell yeah. direct to consumer and fresh within 48 hours of harvest. So it was pretty limiting, but it was a good way for us to get our feet wet um, and build those customer relationships and learn how to do reservations and deposits and all of that. Um, and then we we advanced to the next level, which requires more infrastructure. Um, the lower exemption allows you to kind of do things outside. Like obviously you're still needing to be sanitary and they do inspect it, but um, the next level up is a little bit more strict Mm-hmm. And for us, it's plenty, you know, that, and there really are like no USDA poultry options in our state that I know of that would, that would accommodate farms like us, which is just not necessary. And there are so few farms in our state that offer this co-packing service. Um, one of them actually just closed, closed their operation for co-packings. So I, I can only think of me and one other in West and all of Western Washington that does this. Wow. Um, so it's really, it's extremely limited. It's very needed. Um, although I will say we've had quite a few cancellations this year because uh, the inputs have gone up so high mm-hmm. that a lot of farmers just can't afford to raise poultry this year. Yeah. You, you were detailing on, on that blog you did or that article you did about the different inputs. I mean, just you want to share about some of those different inputs. Yeah, I mean, so it's, you know, it's very expensive to raise livestock because you have to feed them. And Mm -hmm. we do get a lot of customers. I know this podcast is for farmers. So 
I don't think anybody will make this mistake, but we have a lot of customers, I won't say a lot. We have some customers who email us and ask like, are your chickens just grass fed? <laughs> are, is your pork grass fed? And I have to do this whole like monogastric animal yeah. lesson. Um, and so where we are in Western Washington, we have great pasture, especially in the kind of wetter times of year, but we, we don't grow grain because it's mm-hmm. wet. It's hard to dry it. We also, and so there's not a lot of infrastructure in Western Washington for that, you know, finding a combine, for example, would be very difficult. Um, grain storage bins, that type of thing. So all of our grain, we source from Eastern Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we source from a non-GMO feed mill. It's much easier for us to buy like pre-mixed balanced feed. Mm-hmm. but the cost so that you know everyone's struggling with all of the rising feed costs you know last year this time last year we had actually it was in june we had this massive heat dome which had just astronomical temperatures i mean we were at 115 degrees mm. and that really negatively affected the crop production that year uh, and of course you have the war in Ukraine and all of this. So everything is just going up, 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 up. And then the fuel costs. So because we, we ship our feed from, from Eastern Washington, the, mm-hmm. the cost to ship that feed has gone up significantly. It's probably close to 20% now. What are you paying per pallet to ship it? Uh, today we paid 155 oh, gosh. per pallet. Yeah. Um, you might want to check with a company called Central Transport. They have a pallet rate okay. shipping, which um, if you get on that pallet program and your your pallets comply, it can be really cheap. We can ship from New York to our place, which is 12 hours for like 150 bucks. So because you're only shipping in state, you might be able to get, you know, I think in state for us, it's like $63 a pallet. So you I don't need know. need to fill exact- a truck? No, it's, it's partial okay. load. It's LTL. So I'll check them out. Trans- Central transport. Yeah. Now, what I will say is they can be a pain to deal with, and you do mm-hmm. not want to tell them that they're delivering to a farm. Um, mm-hmm. So like when we ran into a problem, we were shipping a pallet to Vermont and um, we put the, obviously the name of the farm was, you know, uh, honey something farms and they hit us with a massive overage. So what we've mm-hmm. actually done is we're lucky enough to have a something down the road that allows us to drop pallets there and then move it back to our farm by ourselves. Um, mm. We're only 400 yards from this. Basically, it's a commercial lumber yard. So your uh, farm's not near that. But you again, it's mm-hmm. worth checking out to see like, there's yeah. any there's anything there. Um, yeah, because again, you're right. Paying $155 per pallet in state is pretty darn expensive. It is. And it's just the, we just use the trucking company that the feed mill contracts with. And yeah. we've, we've, we have looked around for some like hotshot delivery type things, but yeah. I will, I will check out. We are definitely a farm with a narrow driveway that they have to back into. So yeah. Um, yeah, that might not work for them, but I will definitely look. Thanks for the tip. Absolutely. Um, so, okay. So feed went up, freight went up. What other things yep. have gone up? Um, some things that, I mean, everything, obviously. So one thing that is related to oil and gas going up, which I didn't anticipate was like the dry ice to ship that we get for shipping went Mm. also went up because that's tied to that industry, which I didn't know. Yeah. Um, we're very fortunate that we have access to a dry ice distributor that I just, I have to drive to Tacoma for it, but we get it much cheaper than we would if we had to go to like just the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, wages. So mm-hmm. we, 
I, I could not, I, I could not have done this if we did not receive a grant, a loan from the government, the uh, EIDL, Emergency mm-hmm. Economic Impact Disaster Loan from COVID. Um, we took out a really big loan and mm-hmm. that's the only way that I can be paying, I think our employees what we're paying them because we'll, we'll see at the end of the year if it evens out, but um, you know, farming is so seasonal in terms of revenue. Uh, so we start, you know, we hired a few new folks and we're starting at 18, mm. um, dollars an hour because they can go get a job. They can literally go to get a job at Walmart for 19. Yeah. Um, so it's hard <laughs> and that's a lot like for, for farmers, I think that's a lot. And then we have two folks on our crew who've been with us for a few years and they're at 20 this year. Yeah. Um, and my husband and I, we don't we don't pay ourselves that much, you know, or anything close to it. Um, if we ever, this is the first year we're taking any, any income from the farm. Obviously the farm does pay for a lot of things, including like our mortgage, which is wonderful. And I'm not, Yeah. obviously we have, we have wealth in the land. So I don't want to complain about that, but um, yeah, wages, 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 wages. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when with the people you're hiring for that rage at 18, are they coming where they have experience with animals or they just completely green? So the two new folks we hired this year, one is in the poultry processing crew and she did not have any experience. Um, But she's actually been amazing. Like she's a pro already. So I'm Mm -hmm. super excited about her. Then the other guy has, he does not have livestock experience but he definitely he he's from alaska and he used to work in like fisheries and stuff so we knew he had experience like working with his hands outside in inclement weather Mm -hmm. um that said i don't think i could have found anybody with or without experience who would take the job for less i just don't Mm -hmm. you know um, there are farms around me that do offer less and they, they find crew. I think it's going to be difficult, but it's a little bit different too. the type of farming, um, you know, young people who go to work on a vegetable farm, there's like, there, there's something that they're trying to experience that's worth more than just the hourly wage, not to say that they shouldn't be paid fairly, but maybe they're willing to, to make 15 or $16 an hour because they want that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and the positions that we're hiring for are not quite like that. You know, um, we have a field manager and we, and so it's kind of funny when we first started looking for internships before we landed on our first farm, we, we interviewed for some, some jobs at a farm out here. And I remember being like, I don't want this job because they're looking for somebody in just the packing shed. And that's not Mm. the experience I want. I want to get a full, like well-rounded experience. And now that I own a business and I've been doing this for almost a decade, I'm like, I just need somebody to work in this area. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like I, Mm -hmm. it it just depends on the experience that you're offering and what kind of people you're attracting. But, but we are also very fortunate in that we tend to have good retention. Mm -hmm. And I think a big part of that is the wages. Um, Yeah. And so I know a lot of vegetable farms are especially having to retrain folks year after year. Yeah. Yeah. Or like I mean, we, we slow down the winter. So we've already selected the core team, which is going to stay with us and mm. they know that, but you're right. We'll be having to scale back up and bring out a couple more summer help 
which mm-hmm. um, yeah, is a mass aspect of retraining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. So, um, share with us a little bit about the, the production system you're doing. So you're a pasture based farm, but share a little bit about like, um, like your, your uh, poultry system. You're using like a, I think a modified field shelter. It's more like a somewhat of a hoop house. Yeah. So we have, so we have a couple big ones that I believe are like the 20 by 90 structures that we had built with some customization that are, so they're on skids um, and those have turkeys. And then we have smaller ones, I think are 20 by 20. I say 20 by 90. Maybe those other ones are 20 by 40. No, I don't know. This is like not my area of expertise, the construction part of the mm-hmm. farm. <laughs> But the small, the chicken ones are 20 by 20 and they are hoop structures. Um, we cover them with billboard tarp. Okay. And then the sides, the front and back are um, shade cloth. So they're uh-huh. open. And, um, you know, we have, for us, it's of course like pasture management and deliberate manure spreading. And then also, of course, we have a lot of predators. We have coyotes and bald eagles and things out here. So it keeps our animals safe. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, they get towed to fresh pasture every day, typically. And, um, I would say the challenges are like staying ahead of them with either grazing or mowing, right. Cause if the grass gets too long, then chickens are kind of just flatten it out. Yeah. So we do, so we do have some cows and we have, like I said, we have some sheep. So we try to use them. And then, and then we have pigs, which I think is the hardest thing for us to manage on pasture. Um, going back to the chicken tractors, as we call them, um, we started out on our very, on our first time with like the Salatin style tractors mm. and they're just awful. I, I really don't, obviously like you have what you have and you work with what you have. And if you don't have any money to buy things, then it makes it hard, but those are just awful to work with. You're pulling them by hand. You're like bending over to fill feeders and waters and all this. It's just very hard on your body. And so we realized really quickly that we needed to do some streamlining and and build in some efficiencies so that we're not killing ourselves Mm. just doing daily chores. Um, And the most recent, go ahead. But you build such strong arms. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm some people that, do i'm one that pulled you know i think it was uh, the max there we were pulling 30 30 pens a morning oh no yeah it was uh and then the grass was wait it was like the 12 inches tall sometimes it was uh, yeah it was it was challenging but um i mean if you add up the yeah. hours oh yeah no i i i'm 100 a f- huge fan of the larger pens that you guys have the yeah. 20 by 20 the 20 by 40s i think they're massive improvements yeah um yeah but, uh, anyway, yeah. Um, so, well, oh, and those- so like our most recent hack, I guess if the hack is the right word improvement is my husband designed some new feeders. And so for us with our chickens, mm-hmm. we were having to fill feeders twice a day. And currently we don't have like an ATV or anything. So it's just a lot of walking mm-hmm. and, um, he, he had, he designed and had built we have a sheet metal shop nearby, some really nice feeders that are on pulleys and they, they hold like 150 pounds each. Mm-hmm. And so um, doing a lot less of that is helpful because like then the staff is doing other things during that time, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Hey, thriving farmers, do you need a quick win on your farm? Have you struggled to find the right soil amendments that maximize your fruit or vegetable production? In December of 2020, I was introduced to AgriGrow and their prebiotic formulas. I was skeptical at first, but this past season, I boosted my strawberry yields by 18% with an AgriGrow product called Ultra. What does an 18% yield increase look like in dollars? My $6 in product investment returned me $868 worth of marketable strawberries on just three rows. This is the kind of ROI that we need as small scale producers. Ultra is an OMRI listed soil prebiotic technology that has been proven to increase yields and develop soils. To find out more or to order, go to smallfarm.solutions. AgriGrow is offering a 10% discount to all Thriving Farmer listeners. Simply use the coupon code THRIVE when you check out. Again, that is T-H-R-I-V-E for 10% off discount on your first order. So the, the, the pens you have, are they a specific brand or are they something you guys end up building yourselves? The turkey pens we had built by a company down in Oregon called G&K Machine. Okay. The smaller ones, I think we just kind of custom assembled from like greenhouse materials that we got from like a, a farm supply company. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and we have had people ask for plans for those and for the new feeders. And I think that would be something that, you know, sounds great in an ideal world if I could get my husband to sit yeah. down and do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we actually have a, a person now on farm here that she's got a uh, cat experience. So I can't wait to tap her for mm. a lot of the stuff that we're doing this. Yeah, some, because we do a lot of uh, tutorials and stuff. So mm -hmm. um, she's working on the farm this summer and then this winter she'll start jumping in CAD for us, which would be awesome. That's great. Yeah. Um, talk to us about the composting system that you have here in the farm because I'm seeing some pretty fancy, shiny thing you got. Yeah, so that's new. We, we we produce a lot of offal with our poultry mm -hmm. processing. And so we were, you know, doing conventional or, you know, traditional like compost piling. The problem is we don't, our tractor doesn't have a bucket loader. It just has a forklift. And so we do lease our neighbor's tractor, but it's just so much work and it gets smelly, you know, and, or we just don't yeah. have the time or whatever. And so we, there was a grant opportunity in Washington for meat processors to do some expansion. And, and so we got a partial grant for that comp is a rotary composter. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that it was very expensive. Um, the freight alone yeah. came from Canada. The freight alone was like oh, $16,000. <laughs> Whoa. Um, so yeah, super expensive. Um, not something we ever would have considered if this grant wasn't available and if we didn't, of course, have this loan. But it has been a huge improvement for us. So we have we bought from Uline this metal loading bin that fits on the forks of our tractor, and they drilled some holes into it so the water can drain out. So during mm -hmm. poultry processing, we just collect all of the offal under that container, and then it can just drive over with the tractor and dump directly into this rotary composter. And then we add shavings at about the same ratio. And then that thing spins automatically a couple times a day. And then within a week, it automatically dumps out the end. And it's like, like wood chippy kind of material. 
And then that mm-hmm. gets comp- secondary composted in order to like become more of like the fine usable compost. Um, but it's incredible. Like, you know, within a week, all of the organic matter mm-hmm. is completely gone. Mm-hmm. Now, is that compost something you just spread on the fields or you want to sell or? So, yeah, we haven't sold any compost. Um, we would be interested in that if we get our systems dialed in. I think there's like, you know, more testing mm-hmm. and things that has to happen for that. Um, we have had some farms interested in sort of our chicken litter stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so ideally, yeah, we would love to sell everything that we can produce. And we do spread it on our fields, but we also raise animals on our fields. And so we have a lot of nutrients in our pasture. Mm. Yeah. And I know that's one of the things that animal farms can struggle with too much nutrients. I remember being at polyphases, yeah. they were getting to a point where they were talking about having to move some of the poultry poultry off main farm because literally there was too much nutrients on the farm. Yeah. Man. It's a risk. Yeah. We, we are in a, an incredibly wet area. Yeah. So it goes, to, I mean, half the year it's very dry right now, but yeah. yeah, a lot of that stuff tends to leach. We need to lime our fields and we're really struggling with. Oh, so your pH is, your pH, pH is too, too low, too low or high. I I'm this chemistry yeah. like, well, mm-hmm. you would, yeah, you'd lime it to bring the pH up. You would, yeah. um, sulfur to bring the pH down typically or. Yeah. So I think the pH yeah. around here is usually low because of all of the rain. Um, and then, yeah, so, so and like so our soils are very uh, deficient in selenium around okay. here because of that too. So like the minerals that we feed our ruminants is selenium dominant mineral. Mm-hmm. Very cool. But we, te- we do, we test, we have our to- soils tested typically every year, maybe every other year. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is one of the things we struggle with because we're in an area that is not there is agriculture, but it's relatively small scale. You know, even the biggest farms around here are not like mega farms. Like where were they? Eastern Washington, Idaho, they have much larger acreage. Yeah. And so getting a hold of a company that will come spread lime for us, we're like nothing to them. And so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're so, hard. we're so small that we've had the, our local um, feed mill network, they rent buggies. And so we just rent a buggy. And then we just tow it behind one of our tractors or even a pickup truck. I mean, we even got to the point where we just used a pickup truck to tow it around and that worked. Well, and our conservation district did just buy one to Mm. rent to farmers, but it only holds 300 pounds per load. Oh gosh. And (laughs) we need to spread a ton an acre. So yeah. Uh, But I'll, I'll check into the, I didn't think about feed mills. Yeah. I mean, like a local farm supply. So we have a local farm network, well, supply store called Brew Bakers. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, th- th- what they'll get for organic is like pretty limited, but lime is typically lime. Lime is pretty much. Right. T- yeah. So um, yeah, they have the, the high cow lime and you just dump it in there. We also tend to typically go towards gypsum because I've, our pH is actually mm-hmm. a bit high and we try mm-hmm. to typically pull it down. So mm-hmm. with gypsum, you're putting on sulfur and calcium, which does help bring that down. But mm-hmm. it really, yeah, obviously every little area is different. Right. Yeah. Um, talk us through a little bit about the value adding because you're doing a, fab, uh, a fabulous amount of value adding. And I just want to hear mm-hmm. kind of like how that works for you and the processes behind it. 
Yeah, that has been something that we've expanded the past couple years. Um, so because we're doing all this poultry processing, we wind up with a lot of backs and necks and feet. Mm -hmm. So the one of the first things we got for value added was a permit or the license agreement. I don't know. We got approved to make bone broth. And so um, that's been a pretty good seller and it helps get bones out of the freezer. This time of year, it's kind of hard. We don't really do a lot of it. So the bones are accumulating again. Um, and dog treats has been kind of an unexpected thing. So with the, and thing with waste that we normally wouldn't have saved. So all of the chicken lungs get dehydrated and turned into dog treats. Um, hearts sometimes too, because those are slow, a little slower to sell for human mm -hmm. consumption. Um, with the rabbits, they're, they're new to us, but, um, pretty new to us. So we've started making, uh, one of my crew is really fabulous and crafty and she's making rabbit tail keychains. Oh, cool. And, um, another of my crew is really into hides. And so we're salting hides and we're sending hides out to a tannery. So, um, sheep skins, lamb skins and rabbit hides, um, which is exciting. We haven't gotten any rabbit hides back yet. So I'm very excited. Mm -hmm. Now what do people do with those hides? Uh, what's their end purpose with them typically? Uh, well, the sheep, you know, lambskins are mm -hmm. blankets or chairs or whatever. And then I'm not sure what the rabbit hides. I think it's going to be the same, just kind of like a fun little piece of soft decor, but there might be some folks who want to stitch them together and make something. I'm not sure. We'll we'll see. I don't know what the market is on those yet. Yeah. But we're going to figure it out as we go. Right. <laughs> yeah. We're going to try because right. for us, obviously yeah. reducing waste, getting more mm -hmm. value and more dollar, but also it, it more fully honors the life of the animals, the lives of the animals that we harvest here. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now the, the pigs and stuff are done off farm, correct? They're, they're processed off farm. There's two, we have two ways of doing it here in Washington. So of course we have USDA and yes, we trailer those animals to a USDA inspected slaughterhouse and then they get cut and wrapped and then we pick up the meat. Um, and, but we also have custom exemptions here. So I can sell a whole or a half or a quarter or whatever share I want of an animal. And then it can, it will be slaughtered here on farm mm -hmm. by a, a mobile slaughterman. So um, although my husband does the sheep gotcha. himself and yeah. then we can transport the carcass to a, a butcher shop that just has a state license. And then the customer coordinates their cuts with the butcher shop and pays them directly for the cut and wrap. Gotcha. So the video of, um, them basically, I think, uh, scalding a hog is from the, he's a custom guy that comes out to the farm. Well, we actually, yeah, we actually do the scalding ourselves. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, very rarely. It's a yeah. lot of work and it's hot, but, um, but yes, that's, that's through that custom slaughter channel. Gotcha. Um, and then those like the scalded that typically is sold whole, correct for like pig roasts. Typically we, we do not sell whole pigs for pig roasts because okay. we, we don't have enough. And so you have to harvest those animals younger and we want to okay. be gotcha. like a whole family for a year. Yeah. Um, but there are folks that do that. I will say our USDA and our USDA inspected slaughter facility recently did get a skull there. So we can now USDA mm -hmm. scald, which is, it doesn't, we haven't quite found the market for that yet. We tried. There's some things we can get back like the pig ears or the trotters, which 
some restaurants mm-hmm. are into, but, but if for those folks that are selling larger volumes and want to like deliver a whole side to a restaurant and the restaurant wants the skin on, that's an option now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is cool. Absolutely. Now, another thing is you're doing a lot of halal poultry and chickens. Talk about yes. that. Yeah. So, um, we, that's all we offer for our poultry. I've, all of our poultry now is halal and all of our rabbits halal. And, um, it's been years and years in the making, maybe our third year farming. Um, and we were doing poultry processing and I had a guy reach out to me and he wanted to come on farm and slaughter his own chickens, um, mm. for religious reasons. And I was like, okay, sure. That sounds great. Um, and he showed up like straight from Microsoft and he's wearing, you know, like nice office clothes yeah and brought his own knife and he was kind of struggling and like the knife wasn't sharp enough and it was clear to me that he knew what he was doing sort of but but needed some help and so my husband Andrew like offered help and gave him some guidance he went on his way well he took the chickens home to clean and his wife so these are folks from Pakistan but but they're like city people you know Mm, they didn't his wife didn't grow up on a farm or anything and so she got these chickens in her sink and was like what like I have to pluck (laughs) them I have to clean them like what yeah yeah and we're like huh this is a thing like there there are customers out here who want halal chicken but they are not prepared to do the work themselves so how can we help find a way to feed this community you know and so that year or the next year, that gentleman, his name is Tosif, he came and started doing some slaughters. So we would have like some halal chickens and some not halal chickens. And we had to keep track of which ones were which. Um, yeah. And then that became kind of difficult. So then the next year we had a bunch of different Muslim volunteers come out, but that was really challenging because they're volunteering and they have jobs and lives and families. And sometimes they wouldn't show up or whatever. And we were like, we can't really build a business on volunteer labor. And so the first year we moved down to our new farm and we had this really nice new trailer, you know, all the processing equipment, we had um, a, a religious leader from our community, from the Muslim community come down with a whole bunch of our customers to observe the process and talk to Andrew about his religious beliefs. And this gentleman, this Mufti said that Andrew in his, in this particular person's um, assessment, Andrew, my husband was qualified to do this and that the process we followed was appropriate. And so uh-huh. we're very clear on our website about this, that we're not like, we don't have some like seal. We don't have some yeah. certification, you know, this is what we do. This is how we do it. This is what my husband believes. He slaughters every single one of our chickens and turkeys and rabbits in the halal method, saying the proper prayer, doing the proper, all of the proper observances. None of our, none of our equipment ever touches pork or pork products, pig, nothing, um, completely separate part of the farm. And, um, you know, it's up to the individual consumer to decide if that works for them or not. Um, and so it's a little bit unique or well, a lot of times I think for, for us, you know, Judeo Christian, we're like, oh, it's kosher or it's not like, maybe it has a seal. It has to have a seal of approval and it has to be done a specific way. And then it's kosher. And that's true for kosher, but for halal, it depends on who you ask. There's like a little bit more flexibility mm-hmm. depending on which 
you know, particular part of the faith they follow or how strict or, or whatever. And so um, for a lot of folks, it's all about the intention and they find that our intention is there. And the thing, a lot of, what a lot of people don't talk about when it comes to halal meat is that the slaughter is very important, but also the way it's raised is supposed to be very important. And we feel really honored that these people are trusting us and they're trusting our process including how we raise our animals in order to meet that religious designation and fulfill that need, you know? And so um, it's been, it's been awesome. It's been really great. And we don't really advertise as halal, you know, but it's all word of mouth. So our mm-hmm. customers tell their friends, they tell their friends, they tell their coworkers, they post on specific um, like Muslim community pages on Facebook. And so it's been really incredible. It's a, it's a really large percentage of our poultry customers now. Mm-hmm. And so like, was there any specific things that made it more halal? Was there like how they want them? Do they want them killed specific ways or is it just, yeah? okay. But part of why we were even able to, to consider this is because the way that we were slaughtering our poultry, the actual death part was the same. It okay. is slitting the neck of the animal without stunning it. We already did that. Yeah. And so that to them is halal. Cause they, why do they not want them stunned? Is that because it slows down the blood flow or. I mean, you know, there's a, like, I'm not a, an expert on that. Um, yeah. Blood is blood is a contaminant in that faith. And so yes, like having all of the blood drain is very important, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. also about not causing any suffering before death. So it's a little bit ah. like for a lot of folks that aren't familiar with it, they're like, oh, you're, you're not stunning it. That's cruel. Yeah. But then on the other side of it, it's like, well, you're like, a, they c- could be considered abuse of an animal. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, but for us, we, we have never done a stun on all of our poultry. We do prefer to have the heart pumping yeah. well to get mm-hmm. all that blood out. Yeah. And what, what's really unique for us, actually for really anywhere in the United States, I think there might be maybe one other, two other, I don't know, but like the halal rabbit at mm. our scale. So oh, wow. with yeah. most rabbits are, are most rabbits in the U.S. are killed by cervical dislocation. Yep. Um, and so my husband put together a process for doing halal rabbit that's really efficient um, and it's really exciting to some of our customers who, like we have some customers who are Egyptian and I guess rabbit is, is more popular there. And she was so excited to have access to halal rabbit because she just could not find yeah. it in the United States. Yeah. Now, so when, are you cutting both um, arteries in the neck or just one of them when you're killing? I think he cuts both. Okay. Yeah. Cause there's obviously a couple different techniques there to how to do that. Yeah. Cause they, when you cut both, I mean, they literally bleed out. It's like 15, 20 seconds. They're done. Yeah. They're yeah. so fast. It's amazing how fast yep. that is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. He cuts both. And then the, and then the, the, uh, eviscerating and all of that is pretty much the same. Are there anything specific they don't want? Like they, do they, use, they still save like the liver and the heart or is that be as, is that, um, Tell me, yeah. Tell me about that side of the process. That is all the same. And the way that we process our birds and package everything is organs are all packaged separately and available for purchase separately. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. 
Um, so with your value adding then back to that, what is your favorite value added product that you guys put out? Well, we've added some new things this year. That's kind of cool. Um, they're a little bit slower to sell. I think people are just kind of getting used to it or, you know, it's a little bit more money, but so we started spatchcocking some chickens and mm-hmm. pre-marinating them. Oh yeah. So I bought some herb blends from, uh, an urban farmer in Seattle who does spice blends and, um, we mix the marinade and then we marinate them and freeze them. So then as you thaw them, they're going to marinate. So you can just throw them on your grill. I think that's pretty cool. Oh, very cool. I mean, the rabbit tail keychains, I'm obsessed with them. They're yeah. so soft. <laughs> yeah. I saw them on your Instagram. That's pretty cool. They're pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. And then um, talk to us, you know, what would you say to a new farmer? Cause you've been farming now for a while. Um, share a little bit, you know, if someone's thinking about getting into the farm world, what would you say to them? This is like the hard part of the interview. I think um, the fact that your podcast is called thriving farmer podcast almost makes me feel like, ah, should I be on here? Like what is thriving? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's really easy to come off as successful uh, in a lot of ways with the amount of experience that we have, but it is, it is so hard. And post pandemic, I think, I mean, this is just true for everybody globally probably, but it's just really hard. And honestly, I don't know that I would encourage a lot of people to jump into it right now. Um, Mm -hmm. I would, they would really need to be thinking about it long and hard and, and understanding that the full, I mean, there's different types of businesses and some people have this figured out better than me, but I think, and I don't know, I'm curious about your experiences, but like the full sacrifice that you're making by running this type of business, because it is really all consuming. Well, Um, I I think that it's important to look at what you want out of it. Um, mm -hmm. And what position you want to be? I mean, being an entrepreneur and a business owner is really hard in any any enterprise, but mm-hmm. farming is especially difficult. And then you add sustainable regenerative farming on top of that. I think that's just a whole nother level of difficult cult uh, yeah. difficulty to it because. Um, I mean, you're just, you're farming is a numbers game. And, mm-hmm. you know, especially when you're with very small farms, that's a, that can be a very challenging numbers game to play, especially with meat. I know meat can be right. challenged. Yeah. And yeah. Were- so, I mean, we're, we're in that like ag of the middle kind of awkward size, you know, we've, and we've grown every single year. Yeah. Um, and you have to in order to generate any kind of revenue, but then there's also just more work that comes with that. And I am much more on the admin side of things now. You know, I'm doing a lot less of the the work that was fulfilling. So I'm yeah. trying to do to do more of it just for my own mental health, like trying to be out with animals a little bit more. Um, but that's the other thing about farming, and I teach this in sort of my marketing class, is like farming is really not just being outside. Like if you want to sell your product, you're going to be, you have to be a sales rep. You have to be a marketer. You have to be, um, an office customer service. You have, you know what I mean? Like as small business owners, you really have to wear all of those hats and it's Mm -hmm. incredibly challenging and it is fulfilling in a lot of ways, but also you are probably very unlikely to make a, like a decent, wage doing this 
And so you have to also balance that. For us, we've always had some kind of external income, not a lot, but just enough because otherwise we couldn't really pay yeah. the bills. Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing to, to point out is to the location and the country where you are, because that is also mm-hmm. an expensive area as well. Um, yes, but I also have access to a market where they will pay yeah. for the so product. You know what I mean? If you're super rural, you're not going to be able to sell your products for as much money. So there's yeah. that balance. Yeah. So uh, real quick, what do you sell like whole chicken for per pound? Well, so another thing that we've done in the last couple of years is we've, we don't longer sell by the pound. We sell by the uh-huh. cut, which can be really challenging logistically. Sometimes I have two different sizes. Of, so I have whole chickens and I have petite whole chickens. So anything uh-huh. that's under three pounds, I want to sell it for a little bit less. But for my yeah. whole chicken, which is on average between three and four pounds, those are now at um, 32 dollars too so we're looking at eight dollars a pound on that approximately between eight and nine yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah so are you harvesting at six weeks then or seven no we raise we raise freedom ranger color yields so we're actually harvesting at about 10 to 11 weeks oh gotcha yeah yeah okay that would make sense because yeah a, a, mm-hmm. a cornish is gonna literally blow up by six weeks but we trialed Cornish last year was our first time ever growing Cornish. And we said never again. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah. (laughs) Not into them. Gotcha. All right. Anything else we should have discussed? We didn't. Um, I don't know. I think it's good. Yeah, no, it was good. It was great having you on. Really appreciate that. Um, Yeah, I love you guys' Instagram. You got a lot of fun things going on there. And it's really cool to see the different aspects of the farm you show. And um, yeah, yeah, keep up the good work. Thanks. You too. It was really nice chatting with you. All right. You have a great rest of your day. Okay. You too. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.